welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God then separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Evening came, and morning followed, the first day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, New American Bible, Revised Edition. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you today as we begin a new series on Anchored by Truth. So to announce the series and tell us why we're doing it, we have R.D. Fierro in the studio. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. Artie, you've entitled this series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. This ought to be fascinating. I'm not sure how many facts there are that pertain to the Christian faith, but way more than 10. How in the world are you going to pick 10 from the hundreds or thousands of facts that are relevant to those who put their trust in Christ? Well, I'd like to start out today by expressing my gratitude for everyone who is joining us here today, whether it's on the radio broadcast or the podcast. Well, as you mentioned, you're absolutely right that there are hundreds, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of facts that shape and fill the Christian faith. And that is one of the points that we want to make by doing this series. The Christian faith is a faith of facts. Well, that's an interesting phrase, a faith of facts. That phrase alone starts to raise questions. I think most people would see or draw a distinction between faith and facts. And I think you're right about that. Many people in our world think that if we're talking about faith and facts, that we're talking about two entirely separate or different categories of ideas. But that's a contemporary fiction. The great theologians throughout the ages have always recognized that authentic saving faith has at least three dimensions. Authentic saving faith consists of a content, an assent to that content, and a trust in that content. Well, the content of that authentic saving faith must have a body of facts in it, or it's not faith at all. Now, it might be gullibility, it might be credulity, it might be imaginative fantasy, but it's not faith. If someone says, I believe the moon fairies come and visit me at night and sprinkle glowberries at the foot of my bed, that's not faith. And if someone chooses to label that kind of a belief in moon fairies and glowberries as faith, well, that is certainly not what the Bible means or what classic Christian theology means when we use the term faith. And while critics might assert that we are playing word games, there is a very concrete distinction between biblical faith and the glowberry kind. Christian faith always begins with and ends with the truth. Truth is what corresponds to reality. We make this point regularly on Anchored by Truth. It is a critical distinction. 
Belief in moon fairies and glow berries might give a small child a distraction, but it won't help an adult struggling with addiction or financial troubles or a sick loved one or comfort with a desperate illness. Authentic, saving faith will help with all of those situations and a great many more. So when we say that Christianity is a faith with facts, we're saying that it is a faith grounded in the real world, in time and in place. But it is nevertheless a faith that recognizes that there is a real realm that is outside of the visible created order. There is a real realm, a supernatural realm, that is outside the part of the created order that we can perceive through our senses. And we know about the reality of that other realm, the supernatural realm, from the Bible. And that's why we have to become so familiar with the Bible, because we have to use the Bible's truth to guide us through our lives in this created order until Jesus brings us safely into that unseen realm that is presently, if you will, on the other side. So during the series, you want to give people a group of facts that will help them reinforce their confidence in their faith and in the Bible. You don't see this series so much as an evangelistic tool, though it could help with that, as much as you do helping believers fend off the world's attacks on their faith. Yes. Classically speaking, the believer's enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, in the modern world, the world's enmity with Christ has just been steadily escalating, and our contemporary reliance on instantaneous and mass media Well, that's allowed false messages to move instantly and continuously. And one of the messages with which Christians are bombarded today is this whole notion of what is sometimes termed deep time. Deep time is essentially the idea that the universe and the earth are billions of years old. The secular world must have deep time in order to maintain the illusion that the general theory of evolution is plausible. Evolution needs billions of years of time to change bacteria into biologists. The only supposed creative force evolution has is beneficial mutation. In other words, the random interaction of unthinking matter. To make the whole evolutionary hypothesis plausible, the scheme needs lots of time. Lots of time is necessary so that lots of these random chaotic interactive events can take place. They need untold trillions of those interactions in the hope that a few of them will produce a living being so complex that the code that describes its construction can contain three billion data elements. The task of turning an amoeba into an anthropologist, that's even more formidable than just having the three billion base pairs that comprise human DNA, having those three billion base pairs properly organized and functioning. You know, when DNA was first discovered, it was thought to be very similar to other chemical components of living beings. You know, the initial idea was that somehow the chemistry controlled the biology. But we now know with absolute certainty that the chemistry of DNA is not sufficient to explain its operation within the human body or any other living creature for that matter. Just as the chemistry of ink and paper does not control the message printed on the paper. The chemistry of DNA does not control the messages it provides. DNA is far more akin to a language that conveys information to other chemical structures and its complexity goes well beyond its numerical attributes. 
Yes, and we're going to get more into that in a future show. But for today, I just want to stick with the issue of time, and specifically that there is abundant scientific evidence that that so-called deep time does not exist. The best science tells us, in fact, that the biblical time frame is far more reasonable than the secular alternatives. So the first fact of the 10 facts that I'm going to focus on in this series, the first fact that every Christian needs to know is that science confirms that the universe and the earth are thousands of years old, not millions or billions. Okay. That's a very bold proclamation, given that probably 95% of the people who call themselves scientists would disagree with it. And I recognize that. You know, it'd be a lot easier for us here at Anchored by Truth to just simply get along and go along with the conventional thinking. But as we started out saying, Christianity is a faith of facts. And the facts of science are not very helpful to a billions of years old Earth. I think we better get into some specific examples of what you're thinking about. I agree. So today we're going to talk about three specific lines of evidence that demonstrate that the Earth is far more likely to be thousands of years old than billions of years old. And the three lines of evidence we're going to talk about are all mentioned in an article on the Creation Ministries International website, and that article is entitled, Age of the Earth. And we're going to put a link to that article on the podcast notes that accompany the podcast version of the show. So if your podcast app supports written notes, you can just go to them and find a link. If not, the Creation Ministries International website is creation.com, and you can just search for, quote, Age of the Earth, unquote. Right. So the article we're linking to contains references to these three lines of evidence, But the article itself contains actually 101 forms of evidence that the Earth is far younger than most people normally think. We don't have time on one of our shows to go through 101 lines of evidence, do we? Nope. So I just wanted to pick a few of the many, many lines of evidence just to give our audience a sample of why they do not need to accept the proclamation of the world that poses a challenge to a very straightforward, ordinary reading of the book of Genesis. So what is the first line of evidence you want to discuss? Well, the first thing that demonstrates that the conventional understanding that the age of the earth being billions of years old is wrong is that biologists and paleontologists have recovered blood cells, blood vessels, and proteins from dinosaur remains that are supposedly millions of years old. But even the scientist who initially made this discovery, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, she has admitted that contemporary science has no explanation for how such soft tissue could have survived intact for the 65 million years, which was the supposed age of the bone in which she first made the discovery of this dinosaur soft tissue. And since that first discovery of dinosaur soft tissue in the mid-1900s, Many other similar discoveries have followed. The first discovery of dinosaur soft tissue was in a T-Rex bone, but since then they have found intact soft tissue in other species as well. Right. The Tyrannosaurus rex bone that contained the first soft tissue that was discovered was supposedly 65 million years old. But then they've discovered protein collagen, more soft tissue, in the bone of a hadrosaur that was purportedly 80 million years old. 
And that's been followed by the discovery of the protein osteocalcin in an iguanodon bone that is thought to be 120 million years old, twice as old as the T-Rex. The dilemma for the scientists is how could such soft tissue have survived for those enormous amounts of time? In his book, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati says, quote, Yet analysis of the collagen stability shows that it would last only 2.7 million years at freezing point under the most favorable preservation conditions. At 10 degrees centigrade, the limit was 180,000 years and 15,000 years at 20 degrees centigrade. It is normally thought dinosaurs were supposed to live in a warm climate, unquote. So the discovery of soft tissue in dinosaur bones, and not just in one bone, but in many, poses a huge challenge for conventional time periods. But it doesn't pose any challenge at all for biblical time frames. You know, biblical scholars are not uniform on their dating schedules, but it's fair to say that most biblical scholars believe that the earth is on the order of 6,500 years old. Well, let's just say that they were off by one or two or a few thousand years. Well, that still does not pose a problem for the preservation of the soft tissue from the dinosaur bones. The analyses of the preservation possibilities, even under the warmer conditions, easily allow for that soft tissue to be preserved for the biblical time frame. And it's reasonable to say that the availability of the dinosaur soft tissue is far more consistent with the time frames laid out in the Bible than with any of the secular speculations. At this point, we should remind the listeners that whether the dinosaur soft tissue was thousands of years old or millions, no one alive on the earth today was there to see it. So, All that any scientist, or anyone else for that matter, can do is to look at current evidence and see what the evidence fits in with a particular hypothesis or theories. And all scientists, whether they are Christians or not, look at evidence through a lens comprised of a set of starting axioms. The evidence might be consistent with the expectations that arise from those starting axioms, or it might not be. What we are pointing out here is that contrary to popular belief, The preservation of soft tissue from dinosaurs creates many additional questions for the conventional time frames, but none at all for biblical ones. So what's next? Well, another conundrum for the conventional idea that the Earth and universe are billions of years old is what is often termed, and quoting, the faint young sun paradox. A young sun paradox. This should be interesting. It is. So let's start out by noting that one commonly accepted idea for how the sun generates its energy is by nuclear fusion, the combination of hydrogen atoms into helium atoms that takes place deep within the core of the sun. And of course, according to Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared, as this thermonuclear fusion occurs, massive amounts of energy would be released. But the combination of multiple hydrogen atoms into fewer helium atoms, that takes up less space. So over billions of years, the sun would shrink in size, but it would increase in brightness. And as the sun increased in brightness, its energy output would increase, meaning that the energy that hits the Earth would also increase. So the faint young sun 
means that if the Sun-Earth system were really 4.5 billion years old as conventional dating asserts, the Sun would have been far less brilliant billions of years ago. It would have been fainter in the Earth's sky 4 billion years ago than it is today. A fainter, weaker Sun would mean a lot cooler Earth. So the question is, how much cooler would the Earth have been? Well, reasonable estimates say that the Earth would have received anywhere from 20% to 30% less sunlight than it does today. And how much cooler would the Earth have been with that much less sunlight? Well, the current average temperature of the Earth is about 60 degrees Fahrenheit. With, say, 25% less sunlight hitting the Earth, the average temperature of the Earth would be below freezing. It would be only about 25 degrees Fahrenheit, and of course freezing is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. In other words, with a sun that was 20 to 30% less bright, our entire globe would have been glaciated. It essentially would have been just one big ball of ice. Well, a big ball of ice is certainly not a condition in which any kind of life would have developed, much less spread widely across the Earth and created the kind of biodiversity that we see on the Earth today. In fact, most scientists believe that the primordial world was much warmer than it is today. Whether we see movies with dinosaur scenes in them or always regaled with lush tropical vegetation surrounding them. But of course, there is a faint young sun paradox only if the Earth is billions of years old. If the Earth is only several thousands of years old, the way the Bible tells us, the paradox never arises. There is simply not sufficient time for the sun to have been any different than it is today. Well, I'm sure secular scientists are aware of this difficulty. So how do they respond? The most common response is that the level of greenhouse gases in the primordial Earth's atmosphere was much, much higher than it is today. And this higher level of greenhouse gas would have provided, in effect, a much thicker blanket than our current atmosphere does. But the problem is that the level of greenhouse gases that would have been needed to compensate for the sun's lower luminosity would have had to have been hundreds of times the present atmospheric levels of such gases. So that's not only an incredibly difficult proposition to believe, but also, according to analyses of information that's derived from so-called ancient soils, those ancient soils do not give any indication of dramatically greater levels of carbon dioxide, which is the most abundant of the greenhouse gases. Now, recently, newer solutions to this faint young sun paradox have been proposed, and these proposed solutions involve slightly higher levels of greenhouse gases, but with a lower level of what's called planetary albedo. Albedo is essentially the reflective level of the atmosphere, and so with lower albedo, more sunlight would penetrate the atmosphere and therefore keep things warmer. Does this solve the problem? Not really. The models that have been proposed to use that approach to solving the faint young sun paradox essentially use a one-dimensional form of climate modeling. But all responsible climate models use a three-dimensional model. So in our podcast notes, we're going to link to a couple of other articles on creation.com. But here's a comment that's from one of the articles that is entitled The Faint Young Sun Paradox in the Age of the Solar System. And I'm quoting now. 
Any climate model other than a three-dimensional general circulation model with a realistic ocean, biosphere, and cryosphere, which is the snow-ice component, is inaccurate. For example, such a one-dimensional model ignores important feedbacks, such as the powerful ice-albedo feedback. As snow and ice increase, the albedo increases to cause further cooling, end quote. Okay. Well, just to remind everyone today, we're discussing the first fact in our new series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. And the first fact that you believe all Christians need to firmly grasp is that there is abundant scientific evidence that confirms that the universe and Earth are thousands of years old, not millions or billions of years old. And the reason this fact is so important is because the general theory of evolution needs billions of years to perform its magic of turning colliding molecules into computer scientists. Without these billions of years, deep time, as it is sometimes called, even the evolutionists admit their paradigm wouldn't work. So, the evidence we're providing today demonstrates that the deep time just isn't reflected in what we see in the created order that surrounds us. So we have to do one more line of evidence. Where do you want to go now? Well, let's talk about what is termed lunar recession. You know, after the first missions to the moon, we were able to put mirrors on the moon that allows us to bounce laser pulses off them. And we can then measure very precisely the length of time it takes the returning photons to reach the Earth, and therefore we can determine with a high degree of precision the distance between the Earth and the moon. So we've done all that, and we now know that the moon is moving away from the Earth at the rate of about one and a half inches per year. Now, if the Earth-Moon system is only several thousand years old, as the Bible tells us, one and a half inches a year is no big deal. But if the Earth-Moon system is billions of years old, all that changes. And the conventional understanding is that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, right? Right. In fact, lunar recession means that an Earth-Moon system that was billions of years old, well, the Moon would have been a lot closer to the Earth than it is today. Well, the calculations about the movement of the Moon at this current rate place a maximum age on the Earth-Moon system at about 1.4 billion years old. Now, that does not mean that's how old the system is. It means that's the maximum age that it possibly could be. Because at that point, the moon would have been so close to the Earth, it would have been below what is called the Roche limit. The Roche limit is essentially the distance from a central body, like a planet, inside of which orbiting debris simply cannot coalesce. In other words, if the moon had been closer to the Earth than the Roche limit, the moon would have been torn apart. Well, of course, conventional scientists understand this. So as a result of this, various theories have been proposed to explain how the Earth and Moon could have arrived in their current configuration in such precise balance. But none of these theories, such as the capture theory or the theory of adjusting the Earth's tidal parameters, really resolve the problem. We have to remember that the Moon is the principal cause of tidal action on the Earth, and it is well understood that tidal action is important to the Earth's ecosystem. If the Moon had been a lot closer to the Earth in the past, there would have been enormous tides, tides so large that they would have swept over huge portions of the land. That would have been devastating for the formation of any land-dwelling creatures. 
But we also know the tides are important for keeping the boundary between the earth and land healthy and beneficial for life as it exists. The harmony between the earth and moon is an essential part of making life on this earth possible. Again, lunar recession in an earth-moon system thousands of years old is not a problem. The relative position change of the two bodies is negligible. But try to take that back millions or billions of years and you have lots of difficulties that arise that have to be explained away. Well, this is a problem for science because the current mantra of science is uniformitarianism, which essentially means the present is the key to the past. But the present is not the key to the past for an Earth-Moon system where the current recession rate of the Moon puts a limit on the age of the system that rules out evolutionary timescales. Yes. So, these are just three of the lines of evidence that show that good science supports an age for the Earth that is consistent with the Bible, but which is a challenge for the most widely held conventional beliefs. Now, I'm being careful about how I say this. Present empirical observations cannot prove the age of the Earth. Actually, only an eyewitness account could do that. All of the empirical observations that are made are made by observers in the present, and then they have to take those observations and integrate the information they get from current observations into whatever information we might receive from previously recorded events. And then they have to interpret that information. But notice, and this is the big point, notice that the three lines of evidence that we have cited today pose no problems whatsoever for a biblical time frame, but they create a whole host of challenges for evolutionary time schedules. And these are just three of the lines of evidence out of the 101 that are contained in the article that we first mentioned. And that article, even though it has 101 points of evidence that point to the accuracy of the biblical time frame, that article is illustrative, not exhaustive. Again, the big point, the fact that every Christian needs to know, is that there is abundant scientific evidence that the earth is only thousands of years old, not billions of years old. And that fact alone destroys the possibility of evolution as it is normally envisioned. Evolution needs deep time. But empirical observations, even when you try to align them with a uniformitarian perspective, do not provide deep time. Empirical observations just pose one problem after another after another, and every solution that is posed to the first problem that arises tends to raise even more problems. And all these problems have to be resolved if deep time and evolution is true. But none of that is necessary for people who simply trust the Bible's description of creation and the Bible's historicity. Well, as you said, the only way to know when the earth was created would be from an eyewitness, and that's what the Bible provides. God was there at the beginning, and the Bible is his testimony to the world of what he did. It's up to us to decide whether we accept his testimony to us or continue to shove him aside in favor of our manufactured idols such as evolution or deep time. There is really no need to do that scientifically, despite what our culture continually insists. As we always do, we want to close with prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer of adoration for the Holy Spirit who is the one who hovered over the water and testifies to us that it was God who is the one and only creator of everything. A prayer of adoration of the Holy Spirit. 
great and mighty God. You are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for their souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you rule and reign with the Father and the Son. When the Son completed his work and ascended to the Father, you came to be our comforter, instructor, and advocate. Finite man cannot fully comprehend the wondrous relationship that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are perfect in unity, holiness, and beauty. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by the Father's sending, the Son's coming, and the Spirit's abiding. Surely such love deserves the response of full dedication to the one who first loved us, and we pray that such commitment might mark our lives. We lift our voices in songs of adoration and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.